From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. Old emails are a fossil record of our lives. The constant, everyday, boring things, the big dramatic once-in-a-lifetime things, they're all in there, trapped like ammonites in the sediment of your inbox. Some of those emails are probably things you sent without even really meaning to. So I was in my freshman year of college, and I had to undergo kidney surgery. My intention was to email my professor with I am afraid that I won't be able to attend class due to surgery. However, I hit send too quickly and just said, I am afraid. So he emailed me back and said, it's okay. That was one of the many messages we got when we asked our listeners for stories about email gone wrong. The thing is, it's so easy to hit send. And once you do, the results are preserved forever. And now it's the end of the year, the end of the decade the end of this show, the perfect time to do some digging. In general, how do you feel about, like, looking back through old emails? Oh, my God, I hate it. Because I'm a really um, impulsive emailer. This is Allison Davis, a writer at The Cut. The old common therapist advice, which is sit down, write the email that you want to send, and then don't hit send. I only do half of that. I sit down and I write the feelings email, and then no matter what, I'll send it. If I look back at the long, my long Gmail sent inbox or whatever, I I do see some growth where Mm -hmm. (laughs) before I would send these emails that were just like deranged and like. In what way? (laughs) Well, like they're clearly like I was too emotional and there were misspellings and like no punctuation and like it looked like a serial killer wrote the email about (laughs) like feelings like and then just click, you know, (laughs) like sentence fragments everywhere. Molly, you having once edited me knows the. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, imagine being my ex-boyfriend and getting that in an email form at like 3.30 in the morning. Take me through a little bit your email writing process if you're writing a deranged email. Like, do you sit down and, like, is it just stream of consciousness? Do you have mental, like, bullet points you're going to be going through? Like, how do you approach it? It is the it is a little bit of stream of consciousness, but also, like, I think I, I, think I take a moment to really think about it. I know my, like, my four points. And then... So, for example, like, hypothetically, what might those four points be? Um, <laughs> you hurt my feelings. Uh, here's how you hurt my feelings. This is why our relationship was so beautiful. How dare you hurt my feelings? Uh, fuck you. <laughs> at least if you send an insane letter by mail, you never have to look at it again. Whatever you wrote, it's gone. This is unfortunately not the case for email. So I have a habit of, um, I guess it's more like a coping mechanism of when I'm really embarrassed by emails that I have sent or received. I just like delete them. And it's like so hard to really fully delete things on Gmail, I will go through every step possible to make sure it is eradicated from existence. What are the places where you have to go to try to achieve that? Yeah, it's not that hard, but like yeah. you have to like delete it and then you go to your trash and then delete it again. Okay, yeah, yeah, but like yeah. you've got to do the two-step or else it's still <laughs> it's lurking. It's going to haunt you. You can be as thorough as Allison and still stumble on an emotional time capsule now and then. Poking around old email is weird because it can take you from a cathartic outpouring to a banal workplace update to a cryptic inside joke in three clicks. And sometimes, even the messages that don't seem like much on the surface can bring it all flooding back. The coffee shop where you used to camp out and study, 
the radiator sounds in your first apartment, how it felt when the people who became your friends weren't quite your friends yet. What were you doing this time last year, or two years ago, or 10? Even if you don't keep a diary, you've got email. For this week's episode, we decided to ask some of our favorite people to go back through the email fossil record and unearth a message that did that for them. Something that captured an era in their lives. What's changed, what hasn't, and how they think about it all now. So my friends had gone to university. I had stayed behind because I had applied to university and not got into the universities I wanted to get into. So instead, I applied to work at this bank and was bored. This is Mona Chalabi. She's the data editor at The Guardian. And the email she chose came from 2006, when she just graduated from high school and she was feeling stuck. So I would just like write a ton of emails to anyone who would like write me back, I guess. It just sounds really, really pathetic. This was not how Mona had thought her life after high school was going to look. She'd studied hard. She'd gotten good grades. Her parents had immigrated to London from the Middle East. And as soon as she was born, they'd started setting aside money to pay for Oxford or Cambridge. Take me back to the mindset of, you know, high school age, Mm. Mona. What did going to Oxford or Cambridge mean to you? Mm. How did you think about it? It meant, hmm, it almost felt like it would have meant that I'd won something. And I don't mean won like a game of fluke. I mean, like, come first in the race. Applying to Oxford or Cambridge works a little differently than applying to an American college. The interview isn't just an optional schmooze with some alum. It's a big deal. I had gone to Topshop with my sister before I went to Oxford for this interview. And we had spent like a full day crafting exactly what I was going to wear that was going to convey like class and sophistication and intelligence. And I had like these fake pearls. What was the outfit? What was the outfit? Describe the... It was these um, tartan trousers that were like bell bottoms, a black turtleneck and pearls. Oh, God, it's like literally what a child would dress their bear up in if they wanted to be, like, clever bear. Anyway. (laughs) This bear is going to Oxford. I know, it's so bad. Mona had made it past the first hurdle just by getting invited to interview. But as soon as she walked into the waiting room, she saw how far she still had to go. Straight away, I walk in and there's, I think there were maybe 30 of us that were going for about three places. I'm not sure, something like that. And it was me... A black woman who instantly we just, like, hung out. (laughs) Um, And everyone else was white. But more than white, it was the way that they spoke. Like, it's so funny how in America I'm just read as posh because, Uh like, you know, Americans can't really necessarily figure out the difference. We have no clue. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You sound quite fancy to us. (laughs) I am not fancy, you know. Like, there's a difference. It's so funny. It's all in the yes. So, like, people from where I'm from are like, yeah. And people who are super posh say, yeah. And they were, and literally, when you go to university, they're called the Yars. Really? Yeah, the posh people are called I've the Yars. I've never heard this before. <laughs> yeah. And they literally, you walked in, and it was like, hi, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> and like, they were all Yars. And like, and I just remember being so painfully aware of my race and class in a way that I hadn't been up till then. Because I'd grown up in London and I'd grown up with people who were from the same social class as me. Mona wasn't poor. But the Yaws were from a different world entirely. They hadn't even bothered to dress up. That was how sure they felt that they belonged. Sitting in that room, wearing her top shop pants, Mona felt like she'd walked into a game she didn't know how to play. She didn't even know the rules. 
So the previous person came out and I walk in and there's a couch for you to sit on and the coffee table is pushed up against the couch so you can't sit on the couch without moving the coffee table. Uh-huh. That was deliberately done between each candidate because the previous candidate couldn't have left the room without the coffee table being away from the couch. And it's moved next to the couch to see, are you going to move the coffee table without asking? Are you going to ask for permission? Or are you just going to be really, really awkward about it? Like, do you have enough confidence to walk into a room and say what you need? Wow. Yeah. And I didn't. That's not my what coffee did you, table. So what did you do? Oh, my God. It was ridiculous. Like, I wish I could... Sh- like, imagine... Imagine, right? Stand, stand, Mike. Stand, Mike. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, well, I'm kind of leaving. While Mona was describing this to me, she got out of her chair in the studio and started to squeeze back in from the side over the arm. So you're, like, Hi. slithering yeah. into the couch sideways so as not to disturb and the coffee like, table. And literally, like, had the whole interview like yeah. this. Like reclining, with my sort legs of... hanging off the couch because oh, I was god. like, "It's not my thing to move." Oh god! And I just remember like a voice in my head just being like, "This is over." I knew from the interview that I absolutely hadn't gotten in. By the time the actual rejection letter arrived, it felt like a formality, which was how she found herself working at a bank, emailing anyone who'd write back. So I sent this email in August two thousand six. Uh, I was nineteen at the time to give some context. While I was working at this bank, decided to reapply to university. I realized that quite quickly while I was working at the bank. I was like, I'm not ready for the world of work. She'd reapplied to colleges and only gotten into her safety school. Now, she had to decide whether she'd take another year and reapply yet again. This was the question she pondered as she slogged through her job. There were many subject lines on this thread. This particular one was, hey, but I think a subsequent one was alive and dying. Okay, so that sets the tone. (laughs) It does, it does, yeah. Bert was a friend and former coworker. The two of them used to gripe and gossip and generally get each other through the workday. Now, Bert had escaped to life beyond the bank, leaving Mona behind. But at the risk of feeling like I'm in some vile American rom-com while sitting at my desk, your email made me laugh and cry alternately and continually. She and Bert had been emailing for a while about what she should do. But Mona felt like she'd reached a breaking point. There comes a time when you realise that the one trait in which you had faith in yourself is actually inherently weak, and not just naturally, but also through your own sloth. I can either take another year out and swallow unbelievable self-humiliation at the hands of my foes, reapply and try for Oxbridge. Um, and when I say Oxbridge, that's like British. OK, you guys know what Oxbridge Cambridge is. and Oxford, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And try for Oxbridge and maybe even the Americas with an unchanged personal statement or succumb to the brutal knowledge that I am simply not good enough and embrace a new, more lowly me. I know I sound like an idiot and you're thinking that I'm a narrow-minded snob, but that isn't the point. I'm still a little hazy as to what exactly the point is, but it's there somewhere. I could also just turn my back on the notion of university altogether. Anyway, thanks again. I'll let you know what I decide to do. Hanging, overdose, cliff jump, etc., etc. Mona. So how do you feel rereading that email now? I, I I know I just sound so gross. I sound so gross talking. Like, I, there's still this narration of me being like... So at the time, I had gone to high school. I was, like, really, really smart at my high school, right? And, like, people all around me had said, you can get into this university. My teachers had said to me, like, you deserve to be here. And at the time that I've written this email, which is a year after that rejection, when I'm going through it all over again, the, the voice of, am I stupid, am I clever... That push-pull just got louder and louder. And I actually think it's that the voice of maybe I am clever has just gotten super, super quiet. I just remember how strong the craving was, circa like ages 15 to 18, for like just some external validation that seemed objective, that it was like, I'm good enough and I'm going to succeed. 
what counts for you now when it comes to sort of like assessing success or like mm-hmm. assessing like what it takes for you to feel like you're doing what you want to do and you're satisfied? I'd let go of the idea that success is something measurable. Like I don't think I don't think I'll ever feel like I've succeeded truly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, when will you ever feel like you've succeeded? No, totally. I think that, if anything, is like what you have to grow out of because it was this fantasy that like there was some thing letter you could receive in the mail that would tell you you were a success and then it would be settled and you wouldn't have to worry so yeah. much anymore. And in yeah, fact, yeah. no matter what, whether you get the letter or don't, you're going to be worrying again. Yeah. Today, Mona is a data journalist, and I can say this because I'm not her. She is quite successful at what she does. But the path from self-doubting 19-year-old to successful 32-year-old did not pass through Oxbridge. Instead, she worked at a bank, went to her safety school, dropped out, moved to France. None of it looked how she assumed it would as a teenager. Is there anything that, like, you would want now to tell your younger Mm. self or that, like, you feel like it would have helped you to know then? No. I think when you're that age, you don't listen to shit. Like, if I had literally been haunted by, like, a real-life apparition of future me that was like, don't do this, like, I would have just been like, fuck off. There's nothing that I would have heard. Usually we're not haunted by our future, though. Usually we're haunted by our past. The ghost of email past arrives to remind you of the unhinged messages you sent to your ex, or the great idea that would blow up in your face, or the casual aside that, looking back, reveals more than you could have realized at the time. Show me no more, you plead with the ghost. These are the shadows of things that have been, the ghost says. That they are what they are. Do not blame email. The subject line of this email is, I love this woman's tattoo work. This is Maddie Agler, a writer at The Cut. And what is the date when you sent it? August 5th, 2018. It's addressed to? To my mom. And then it includes a link to Uh the Instagram page of this tattoo artist. Um, And it says, I think I'm going to try to get an appointment with her sometime. I've been thinking about a wine bottle plus glass or something. And how had you started thinking about perhaps a bottle of wine? You know, obviously, this is a thing that's going to be on my body forever. And, you know, what is something that really speaks to who I am and what I care about and what I like and enjoy? And then I was like, well, I love wine and I drink a lot of it. So a wine bottle and glass seems that seems like a thing that I'll always love and that I'll always want on me permanently. Um, And more than that, I think it was the statement of me as like a bon vivant sort of character who like loves to party and have fun and and loves excess. And I think those are things I crave and that I don't always feel. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and I wanted I wanted to be that person. And I think I thought this tattoo would be a way of, you know, showing that to the world and yeah. to myself, too. Maddie came from a family that observed cocktail hour religiously. And once you moved to New York, there were so many perfect times and places to get drunk. You could have friends over for drinks before the party and then drinks at the party and then stop by a bar after the party and then go out for brunch and have Bloody Marys the next day. I loved it. I loved alcohol. I loved, I just felt like bigger and better in every way. I felt like charming and interesting and beautiful and everything around me felt more exciting and people felt more exciting and interesting and beautiful. So 
Did you end up getting this tattoo? I did not. Maddie sent that email in the summer of 2018. And then in the summer of 2019, she went on a trip with some friends for the 4th of July. We were sort of getting ready to go out for the night. And my friend was like, oh, you know, my stomach's feeling really off. I think I like ate something weird. I don't know. I'm just not going to drink tonight. And often when someone, when we're getting ready to go out and someone would be like, I'm not drinking, it would send me into sort of a panic because I would be like, what? Are we not going to have fun? (laughs) Like, there goes the evening. I guess we're screwed. Um, So I was sort of like, oh, my God, like, can I get you something? Do you need medicine? What can I do? What can I do to enable you to drink? Yeah, Yeah. basically. And, you know, my friend was like, it's fine. Um, I'm just not going to drink. And then she said offhandedly, she was like, you know, I don't need to, like, drink to have fun. And I remember feeling with such intense force, like, oh, shit, I do. I really, really do. And, like, not only do I need to drink to have fun, like, I want everyone around me to be drinking to have fun. So my friend, like, said that to me on July 4th, and I quit drinking on July 14th. Wow. And Bastille Day. Yeah. Yeah. Very sad for the French. I don't think they would approve at all. Not drinking is right up there with exercise more and look at your phone less on the list of things people say they're going to do and then don't do. It's the kind of resolution that's easy to make in the moment and then forget. Or at least, that's the way it usually goes. I went over to a friend's apartment and I told her, I was like, so I'm done drinking. I'm done. And she kind of laughed and I don't, I don't blame her at all because I think it is one of those things you say after like a bad hangover a lot of times. You're like, I'm done. Like that was it, you know? Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, and um, being very melodramatic about it. And she was like, yeah, okay. And like poured me a glass of rosé. And I had a sip and walking home, I was like, no, like that was wrong. That was like the opposite of what I wanted to do. Maddie had started to think about all the ways drinking shaped her life. All the time she spent planning around hangovers, apologizing for drunk texts, finding ways to flake on Sunday afternoon commitments. Drinking had started to make her life feel small. She said her bedroom had started to feel a little like a coffin. And now she wanted to change everything. She wanted it to feel light and airy and open. She went to Ikea, bought a bunch of white picture frames, and replaced her takeout stained comforter with a new one in pale pink. Eventually, inevitably, she had to face the world beyond her room. A month or so after I quit, maybe a little bit more, a friend of mine had a birthday party at a bar, and I basically only knew her and, like, one other person. And I was like, fuck, I, fuck. I don't want to do this. Um, but it was a bar really close to my house. And I was like, you know, I'll go. If it's really awful, I can make a quick escape. And I went. And generally, I think when I drank, it would be like I'd get to a party and be sort of like, yeah, I'm talking to like people I know or whatever. I'm sort of off to the side. And then I would have enough drinks and hit my stride and be like, I can talk to anyone. This is great. <laughs> and I had this like small moment of panic where I was like, oh, that moment's not going to come. Like, I need to just make it happen. And so Maddie, completely sober, did a terrifying thing. She walked up to a stranger and started talking. And it was fine. She actually had a perfectly nice time. She was startled to discover this was possible, even without a drink in her hand. I think I felt on some level that I wasn't interesting enough to be sort of quieter and more withholding and I had to make up for it 
by being loud and being exciting and being like, yeah, we're all having a lot of fun right now. And if I shout it loud enough, we'll all be really having fun. (laughs) Um, But that's not really who I am. But that's how I thought I had to be. She'd wanted to get a tattoo of a wine bottle to prove that's who she was. The bon vivant, the life of every party. But lately, she's less interested in making permanent decisions. She's figuring it out as she goes. How did you think about quitting forever, I guess? Or how did you think about what kind of timeline you were anticipating? Um, at first, I was like, I need to just make it 30 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I changed that to 100 days. And now my my concrete goal is a year. And, you know, the farther into this I get, the less tempted I am mm. to drink. And I, I I wonder if, like, you know, I got to the 30 days and then I was like, okay, I want to do 100. I got to the 100. I was like, I want to do a year. I wonder, will it be like, I want to do two years. I want to do five years. Like, I, I still feel weird being like, am I never going to have a drink again in my life? Like, that just feels so big and strange for me to say. And thinking about big events. Like, if I get married, am I not going to have a glass of champagne at my wedding? It's a question she never thought she'd be asking herself a year ago. She'd gone from considering a booze-themed tattoo to considering a booze-free future. With email, huge things are captured in such small, mundane ways. Occasionally, you'll get an email that feels like it's the right size for the news it portends, like a long breakup letter or a long-awaited apology. More often, though, Email is details, and they're all so trivial in retrospect. That's what Lisa Miller found when she went looking through her sent mail and dug out the messages she sent to a caterer eight years ago. September 2nd, 2011, that was a Friday. I write to him and I say, the rabbi says 200 people could come to the service, but we're going to keep the group at home much smaller. We want a buffet table and enough folding chairs for people to sit with food on their laps, easy to eat. Does that make sense? Lisa's a contributing editor at New York Magazine, and she was writing to the caterer because she knew that her mom was about to die. She'd been sick for a while, but in the summer of 2011, things had shifted. In August, she was too sick to come on the family vacation, and soon, she was too sick to leave her bed. She was still lucid, and no one knew when exactly the end would come. But according to Jewish tradition, the service had to happen within three days of her death. So they had to prepare. The caterer responds... Yes, Lisa, we will go with 50 to 100 people. Since you don't think everyone will arrive at once, I can get 75 chairs. I will be sure to have 100 napkins also. In the final weeks of the summer, Lisa and her brothers had returned to the house where they'd grown up. They all spent the days there sitting around their mom's bed, playing Scrabble with each other on their phones, eating the coffee cake a neighbor had dropped off. Meanwhile, Lisa wrote emails to her mom's favorite caterer. Hi. My father wants me to let you know that it's traditional to serve hard-boiled eggs, bread, or rolls, and lentils. He says you make a wonderful lentil salad. Also coffee and tea, please. Thanks. Lisa's mom was the kind of woman who had a favorite caterer, someone who'd helped throw years of parties at her house. She'd always been a hostess. Whenever the family had guests coming over, she'd buy bunches of tulips in all different colors. And one more thing, and I hope I'm not being a pain— The funeral service and burial will be Jewish, and I think pork, ham, BLTs, whatever, would probably not be suitable. Thanks. I just want to make sure everything's going to be fine in a world where everything is completely not fine. Lisa and her mom were close, but their relationship was never easy. 
Lisa always felt like her mom had a specific, very proper, very feminine idea of how to be a woman, and that Lisa was always falling short. Her hair was especially controversial. There was a while where she liked to cut the bottoms off her T-shirts and wear them as headbands, which drove her mother insane. One day, near the end, Lisa walked into her mom's bedroom. Look at you, her mom said. You look so beautiful. It didn't matter that she was on painkillers at the time. It was like this whole lifelong fight had fallen away. So then September 3rd, so that's later that same day. Hi, Doug. My mom passed away this afternoon, so it's likely we'll have the reception here at the house sometime Tuesday afternoon. We'll know exactly what time in the next half day or so. So then the caterer writes back a couple hours later, my condolences, we will start getting organized. And then it goes into high gear. Hi, Doug. The service is scheduled for 11 a.m. on Tuesday. You should probably be ready to go by 1.30. There's a key in the back door. We'll be gone by 10. My cell is this number. Thank you so much. And then he sends me a menu. Beef tenderloin on a platter of greens with roasted portobello mushrooms and tomatoes. Smoked salmon platter with tomatoes and onions and capers. Bagels, cream cheese, salad with peaches and a Dijon vinaigrette. Fresh fruit, mini flourless chocolate cakes, chocolate chip cookies. Let me know if that's okay. And then I write, can you do a lentil salad? Because it's been in our mind for the last three days that, like, a lentil salad was important. Like, if there isn't a lentil salad, somebody might be sad. And I don't want anybody to be sad or sadder than they already are at my mother's shiva service. You know, he sends me this long, beautiful list of delicious food, and I say, can you do a lentil salad? (laughs) And then I have second thoughts about that, and I say, what I mean to say is, this looks great, thanks so much. Because I I didn't want to be, like, demanding, but I did want the lentils. But I also was in grief. You don't want to be, like, the person who's so, like, unhinged that she can't, like, execute a normal social interaction. Later, after the shiva, Lisa could barely remember the food. She didn't remember the lentil salad, but she was sure there'd been one. Doug was her mom's favorite. He wasn't a caterer who'd forget a thing like that. Way more people showed up than they expected, though. They didn't have enough chairs. One of the things about dying is that It's like giving birth, you know, like when you give birth, everybody tells you you have to have a birth plan and you should bring your pillow and you should have this music planned and you should decide ahead of time if you want your epidural or you don't want an epidural. And when it happens, it just happens how it happens. And like no amount of planning or pillows are going to like get in the way of how it's going to happen. You can't control it. And the same thing with death, right? We have lots to do and we have lots of obligations and we want to know when it's going to happen so we can plan the party and know how many people are going to come and know how many chairs to order. And the fact is that it is impossible. Like you cannot know and it's going to happen how it happens and you have nothing to say about it. Lisa hasn't stopped trying to plan it all. 
She makes lists. She makes lists about her house and lists about her kid and lists about her work. She's not going to be able to control everything. She knows that. But she makes the lists anyway. I think, like, it's just a scaffolding for all of the uncontrollable, emotional, unknown stuff that is life. And I think in retrospect, I see that, you know, how much the list-making that is my habit is, is like some kind of defense against what I can't control. On the other hand, like, somebody's got to organize the party. Might as well be me. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up, what it's like to write an email to someone who's known you all your life and who suddenly sees you as a stranger. That's after the break. Welcome back. On today's show, we're looking back at our past selves by digging through our old emails. They're a record of all that's changed and all that hasn't. And for the writer Andrea Long Chu, a lot has changed. When did you transition? So I came out in the summer of 2016. Mm-hmm. I had a uh, relationship end amicably and sort of immediately was like, It wasn't an identity thing. It was immediately like, I know I want to go get lipstick. And I know I want to try on a dress. And she came back to get her stuff, my ex. And we had this conversation. And I, like, I said, you know, that I was happy that this was happening because there were these things that I had been wanting to explore that I had just sort of put in a drawer Mm -hmm. previously. And she asked me, would you like to try on some of my clothes? Um, So I tried on some of her things. It was sort of the perfect circumstances where we were packing up her stuff. And so just trying things on as they're going into the boxes uh, and ended up with two or three things that were hand-me-downs, which I then wore until I got other clothes. How did you start talking to other people about it beyond your ex. Oh, all I wanted to do was tell people. All I wanted to do was tell people. It was so exciting for me to tell people. I felt like I had met someone. Uh-huh. Which I had. It was like the thrill, the like early thrill of infatuation. Andrea still wasn't quite ready to tell her family. She'd worked out a careful rollout plan. She'd try to get her siblings on board first, then have the conversation with her parents. But before she could put the plan into effect, the internet intervened. My father sent me a photo of myself that I had posted to Facebook and said, can you explain this? What was the photo that your father had found or that was sent? It was me in a crop top dancing at, like, House of Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is actually is funny for several reasons, one of which is that it is the only time I have ever been dancing at House of Yes. Uh, so it was this picture of me dancing. And with, with importantly, chicken cutlets, as we call mm-hmm. them. Um, I would wear a new bra, like N-U-B-R-A. Uh-huh. These, like, you know, it's like the stick-on stick kind, kind. And you yeah. put them on, and then you, like, you put them on kind of far apart, and then you bring them together and clasp them. Mm-hmm. And so I was wearing an A-cup new bra 
and then a B-cup new bra over the A-cup new bra, and then an actual push-up bra from American Eagle over that, so as to have something substantial. So it's, like, very apparent in the picture that I have tits, and I think I had, like, lipstick on. This, like, matte purple lipstick from the Walgreens on Astor Place. (laughs) So that was totally out of the blue and was not part of the plan. That was a kind of disaster. When Andrea's dad texted her that photo, she asked if she could call him to talk. He said no. And in the days that followed, the rest of the family went into crisis mode. Word started to spread among the relatives. Andrea had a big extended family. The heart of that family was her grandmother. We called her Mima, which I guess is some sort of Southernism that we adopted at some point, though she was not Southern. But the the line about Mima was that she had been an only child and therefore had wanted a big family. Mm. So she had five kids, and four out of five of those kids had four kids. It's this huge, this is my dad's side of the family. It's a huge family, an enormous number of cousins. And she loved all of them, like every one of them was her favorite. And, <laughs> and when you talk to her, she would make you feel like you were her favorite. She was incredibly doting. She had this big shock of white hair that was sort of, it was almost like soft serve ice cream. Mm-hmm. There was a sort of like layering to it that didn't totally make sense. <laughs> and she always had very long natural nails. And so a beloved thing among all of the cousins was getting your back scratched by Mima. When you're getting tucked in at night, she would come and pray, and then she would give back scratches, and they were just like the most... I still like... I still love having my back scratched because of this, because Mima had... could like do this thing because she had these claws. And she would hug us, and she would say into like our ears... You are so precious to me. Precious was the word she always used. You are so precious to me. A few months passed after her dad first found that photo, and Andrea didn't hear anything from her grandmother. She didn't even know whether her parents had told her. I got a letter from her November of that year, November 2016, which would have been, like, on the occasion of my birthday. And I don't think that I knew if Mima knew. What did you think when you saw it? Oh, like, fuck. <laughs> because it was because it was clear that, okay, okay, so like Mima does know, and like I didn't know what to expect. And I didn't know how much she would be capable of understanding or, you know, like I don't think I had ever once been the object of her disapproval. And so there was now the possibility of that. Her handwriting on the envelope was instantly recognizable. Boxy, like the numbers on a digital clock. And it says, Sweetie, this year you'll complete 24 years of life and begin your 25th. It's hard for me to believe those numbers. I can remember you coming to me as a baby on the days your mom had to go to work. Grandpa and I enjoyed Grandparents' Day at your school and going to see you take part in the school's theatrical productions. Then came your scholarship, another step in the culmination of God's great gifting of his precious child. His is capitalized. This went on for paragraph after paragraph, recounting the highlights of Andrea's first 24 years of life, from college to moving abroad to finding a girlfriend. 
So much has changed over the years. Grandpa has passed on, and I am in my 80th year. Our children have grown older, and many of our grandchildren are becoming slash have become adults. I was totally surprised by the transgender change which you have chosen. I happened to call your family the very day they were learning about it. I wept first with your mom, and when your dad came from being on call and phoned me, I wept with him. It has been very, all caps, hard on them. Honestly, there is much I do not understand. I watched a frontline program, Growing Up Trans. It was pretty informative. What is puzzling to me is this. How can you, who apparently loved someone, knew what it is to consummate that love, knew what it is to have a best friend with whom everything can be shared, how can you give all of that up to be someone other than who you are biologically? But then, as I said, there is still much I do not understand about the LGBT community. I feel as if I am writing to someone I haven't met, someone I don't know. Yet I have all of those precious memories going back over 20 years. So this long note is an attempt to lay it all out there while I send birthday wishes, much love, and a small gift. Mima. How do you remember feeling when you read that the first time? Oh, I cried. It's a strange letter. It's very strange because the first eight paragraphs or something are just remembrances? Yeah. Are just, and then you were a baby, and then you were in theater productions, and then you went to college, and then you went to... Just like, as if, like, I don't know these things, telling me, like, these, like, milestones of my own life. It's like a eulogy or like a... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, I think that's right. On some level, I was angry... I was angry at how she at how she described my parents and was describing it from their perspective as something that had happened to them. Mm-hmm. Why had I thrown my life away and done this thing that would hurt them so much? It was also hilarious because her reaction to my grandchild is transitioning was to watch PBS. <laughs> It's kind right? of endearing. Like, it's, it's very endearing. It's like I'm crying. It's like, well, I watch. And so I'm like, well, I like, I don't think my parents were watching documentaries about, like, yeah. it was something. It was absolutely something. And there's a genuine humility in it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, maybe I just don't understand. How does reading it now feel, sort of, with the distance of a couple years I mean, I, so when I read it now, I'm angry with myself. For what? Because I thought I had time. The next time Andrea's family would be together, all in one place, would be at her grandmother's funeral. But Andrea didn't know that then. I thought I had time to be angry at her. I thought I had time to be angry at my parents. And, like, wanted to see her. Certainly wanted to see her more than I wanted to see my parents but wanted to be ready, both in terms of, like, psychologically prepared, ready, mm-hmm. but also ready like like a loaf of bread. 
like I wanted to be baked. I didn't want her to see me so early in transition that it would look like I was transitioning. I wanted her to see, like, the finished product. So Andrea didn't go visit her. Instead, eventually, she sent her an email. She just wanted some way to reassure her grandmother that her grandchild's life was okay. And she attached a photo of herself. My girlfriend took this picture specifically to be sent to my grandmother. Really? Tell me about that. I, well, I, I, I was like, I don't have any good pictures of myself, which I always feel, but I, I don't have a good picture that was like, like if I have sort of one chance to show her something, mm-hmm. and it's like a very booby picture. <laughs> also, there's like, and the, 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 the... Such as we all send to our grandmothers. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's a photo of me standing outside my apartment in a halter top dress from Target, a red floral dress. And I'm in sandals. It was the summer. I don't think I'm wearing a bra. So my boobs are sort of like flying <laughs> off in opposite directions. No, uh, but they look voluminous because of like the the way that the halter is working. But it was that, like, I felt hot in it, which is not a common thing with my clothes. And I wanted it to be something that was clearly nothing she could have ever seen me wear before. What was her response to this note like, do you remember? Uh, well, I have it. I can oh, also do you wanna, read it. If you have it, would you yeah, read it? Yeah, I will happily read it. Um, sweetie. I was so happy when I sat down at the computer to find your email. It is great to hear from you. These pictures look pretty much like the way I remember you. The couple of things that I notice is that you've added a few pounds since I last saw you, and you've developed a bosom, and your facial hair looks like it has pretty much disappeared, both of which, I imagine, are the result of your hormone therapy. I've developed a bosom. Like, the good folks over in the in bosom development <laughs> have been hard at work. They've disrupted the bosom paradigm for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, really <laughs> disrupting the bosom space. Um, and what was receiving that like? Oh, the, I was so, like, this is a, a very, this is a very difficult thing about transition generally, which is that Yes, I am the same person. No, I am not the same person. And both of those things need to be true, and the person needs to be capable of holding that in their head. And so it makes me, I'm like piqued by the fact that she would say, oh, like you do look pretty much the way I remember you. I'm like, no, I don't look like the way you remember me. I look really fucking different. Like it's, my goal is not to look like you remember me. I don't want to look like that person. Right? Like, I do, I do want to be unrecognizable to you, even as you're telling me that I'm unrecognizable is incredibly painful. Mm-hmm. I don't want to recognize myself. The worst part about transition is that I still do. All those past selves, unrecognizable, too recognizable, they all persist, hanging around in the messages read and sent. Working on this episode, I obviously got sucked into my own inbox and lost an hour clicking through the last five or six years. There were ancient party invitations and long-forgotten writing assignments, and eventually, going way back, 
I found the first email I ever received from Stella Bugby, who would later become my boss at The Cut. So it's dated um, Thursday, May 23rd, 2013 at 10.53 p.m. <laughs> Setting the precedent for our working relationship. <laughs> A totally normal time to send an email like this. And it says, what is the subject line? Coffee next week, question mark. Hi, Gabby. <laughs> Stella wanted to get coffee with me and talk about a job at The Cut. Or possibly she wanted to get coffee with Gabby. It was not clear. So embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed to be reading that I called you Gabby. Who was Gabby? I've always wondered. Yeah, I don't I've know. always wondered. So I have no idea who Gabby was. I don't know if there was a Gabby. Well, I don't know if I just was typing Gabby, but thinking Molly. I don't know what I was thinking. I have... Especially since your email is right there and it says Molly Fisher. How do you respond to an email like that? I wasn't sure, but I did my best. So I replied, Hey, thanks so much for the note, but just to double check before I make a fool of myself, was this intended for me? (laughs) I just noticed... That it was addressed to Gabby. (laughs) If it is for me, though, yes, I'd love to get coffee and talk. What kind of timing is best for you? In a way, my time at The Cut is proof of life after a mortifying email. I will say, I don't think I ever would have imagined that we could make a podcast like this. So, that's cool. (laughs) Thanks for giving me a shot at it. Thanks for letting me try. I'm glad that we stuck through that and and you did this. Me too, Stella. Good job, Gabby. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for the show. I can't say see you next Tuesday, so I'll just leave it as see you next time. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Kate Parkinson Morgan. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Lynn Levy and Stella Bugby. Mixing by Emma Munger. Our music is by Haley Shaw, Emma Munger, and Peter Leonard. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvan Esso. We want to thank Alex Bloomberg, Nazanin Rafsanjani, Pam Wasserstein, David Haskell, and Adam Moss for their support of this project all along. And Jen Hahn, Lauren Stark, and Ode White for helping the show find its way to new listeners. And thanks to all the people who have helped us make this podcast. Olivia Natt, Peter Bresnan, Zach Schmidt, Bobby Lord, Chris Neary, and Carrie Ann Thomas. And finally, the women of The Cut and New York Magazine and the Clog Slack channel at Gimlet for sharing so much with us. Their anxieties, the things that make them horny, their phone calls with their moms. We could not have done it without you. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.